I have a book in my office called God's Mighty Hand. The author, Richard Wheeler, takes dozens, maybe even hundreds of events throughout history and points out very specifically how God was at work in the lives of individuals and in the lives of groups and sometimes even in the lives of entire nations. One of the key and pivotal events in our history took place on September 11, 2001, and our society is significantly different because of that day. Each one of us has felt the effects. Now, most of you probably remember, if you remember that day, exactly where you were and what you were doing, and maybe even in vivid detail. I can remember being here at the offices at Colonial, and as word started to spread throughout the office and from cube to cube and door to door, we all turned on our computers and tried to find what information we could on the internet and see if there was any video we could watch. And later on that morning, we gathered here in the parlor and we prayed for our nation and prayed for the families who were immediately impacted by those events. Our speaker has a very unique perspective on the events of 9-11. But he comes not only to share his perspective on that day, but also to share with us what God has taught him and, in turn, what God wants to teach us. Steve Scheibner joined the U.S. Navy right after graduating from college, and he was commissioned and trained as a pilot. He married his college sweetheart, Megan, and they began a life together that has involved eight children and 15 moves. Steve was deployed several times flying the P-3 Orion. He left active, active duty in 1991 and began flying for American Airlines. And he flies the Boeing 757 and 767. In the late 1990s, Steve enrolled at Calvary Baptist Theological Seminary. And he received two master's degrees and he's currently working on his dissertation for his Doctor of Ministry degree. In July of 2000, the Scheibners moved to Maine, where Steve founded the Cornerstone Baptist Church. And all the while, Steve remained active in the Navy Reserve. He has designed and taught Navy core value seminars. Steve and Megan have developed a parenting course called Parenting Matters. Most recently, Steve has retired as the senior pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church, but life for the Scheibners did not slow down at all. Steve is currently a commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve. He's a first officer for American Airlines, and he has started a brand new conference ministry called Character Health, which you can find at characterhealth.com. And Steve comes to tell his story, and to give us a wonderful message from God's Word. It's been my pleasure to get to know Steve the last few months, and I ask you to please join me in welcoming him to this pulpit. Thank you, Scott. Thank you for the invite and the opportunity to be here. As you know, this is the third service, and so that's the third time I've heard that introduction. I'm really exhausted now. Um, Because I'm thinking it's, I probably need to retire or get rid of something in my life. But, uh, you know, that's just the, that's just the, the way God wires us, some differently than others. Um, I remember once a, a funny story. Uh, in fourth grade, 
Mrs. McWilliams, who was not high on Steve's program and was trying to teach me a few things. And Mrs. McWilliams was uh, an older lady, uh, and she had been teaching for a number of years. and, And I was staring out the window one day. And I love staring out the window because I was, I was actually planning ways to escape from Mrs. McWilliams' class, all right, just to be honest with you. And uh, it was in the fall, and the snow was starting to come down. This was in Michigan when we used to live there, and I'm just staring out the window, and she comes by, and she had this uh, thing, and she whacked me on the leg with it, and, and she, she leaned into me, and she said, Stevie Scheibner, she said, you will never make a living staring out the window. Now get back to work. <laughs> So about five years ago, I was somewhere over Kansas at about 37,000 feet. And I have to admit, it gets boring in the cockpit sometimes. So we're just sitting there. It's totally silent. I'm just bored as can be. And I started laughing uncontrollably. So the captain I was with said, what is going on? And I remembered Mrs. McWilliams telling me I'd never make a living staring out the window. She was wrong. (laughs) It's hard to um, imagine that uh, this week we're we're looking back over our shoulders now at at, uh, September 11th. Uh, Nine years have passed already. Isn't that hard to imagine? Nine years. And uh, what I'm here to do today is to tell you my story. It's a a pilot's perspective uh, on the events of, of September 11th. And I was very close to the events of September 11th. I have flown every 757 and every 767 that American Airlines owns. I sat in the very seat of the two American Airlines jets that were hijacked. The first one was flown into the North Tower. That's the one you didn't see on TV. The second jet was flown into the Pentagon. You also didn't see that uh, on film. But uh, I I have sat in the very seat of those airplanes. I, I knew the captain on the American Airlines Flight 11, the one that was hijacked out of Boston. John Oganowski and I had flown together on a number of occasions. I would consider him my friend. Uh, I knew all the flight attendants in the back of the airplane, uh, wonderful, beautiful people, Uh, and I would also consider them my friends as well. Uh, And I call September 11th a massacre, not a tragedy. Uh, An earthquake is a tragedy, Uh, But a cold-blooded, willful thing like September 11th is a massacre, and those people were brought down in the prime of their lives by people who had very evil intent. September 11th, for all of us, me included, was what I like to call a major life event. A major life event is one of those times where, like Pastor Wiley just said, where your brain takes a snapshot, a, a photograph, if you will, of where you are right at the moment. And you can probably remember right now where you were, what you were wearing, who you were with, what TV screen you were looking at when you saw all those things. At first, as you saw the images of those buildings burning, your mind said, this can't be real. And you struggled for 10 or 15 seconds to process what you were looking at. And then finally, it sunk in that this was really happening in real time in in front of you. And it made us sad. It made some of us angry. It made some of us just... Um, sit and contemplate what our life was all about in a way that we had never done before. And so September 11th was a major life event. But when you think about it, in the history of this country, it's not the only major life event we've ever lived through. Uh, There are some in this room today, I can see, that are old enough to have lived through another major life event, and that was December 7th, 1941. 
And if you remember those events and you were old enough, you remember where you were and who you were with and what you were wearing and how your parents felt about that day. And you remember the post-December 7th era that you lived in, known as World War II. We now live in what we call the post-September 11th era, and we say that everything has changed these days. And that might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but enough has changed We think about security differently. We think about airports differently. We think about flying airplanes differently. Thousands of men and women have given their lives to fight terrorism around the world. So we think about life differently these days. And over the years, I've tried to put in perspective uh, what the Lord was doing in my life through the events of September 11th. Why did I come close to those events but not me and And all of those types of bigger picture questions. And as the Lord drove me to the scriptures, he took me to John chapter 21. And that's where I want you to turn, John chapter 21. Because if you think about it, the perspective of September 11th is a a major life event, no doubt. And December 7th, 1941 was a major life event, no doubt. But both of those major life events pale in comparison to the most major of major life events of all history. That is the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Am I right? We are gathering together here today, 2,000 plus years later, to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was the most major event in all of history, and it will remain the most major event until the return of our Lord If you were one of his disciples, what would you be doing in the post-resurrection era? You know, we still live in that era. So the question then I just asked would be a good one for all of us. What should we be doing as his disciples in the post-resurrection era? So in John chapter 21, the Lord takes us to a post-resurrection event. The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord has taken place. He now appears to his disciples for the third time. Let's bow our heads before we look into God's word. Father, thank you for the privilege of ministering your word. And I pray, Father, now that as our ears and our minds and our hearts are opening to your word, that you would minister to us, that we would walk out of here today, Lord, transformed, more changed into the image of Christ than when we came through those doors. Father, whatever reason brought us here today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would reach out to us now as we look into your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read the first four verses to you of of John chapter 21. It starts out like this. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And then they said to him, well, we'll come with you. They went out, they got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Let me set the stage for you here now, all right? When the going gets tough, the tough go fishing, all right? And here they are. 
So Peter comes up with a, a wonderful, brilliant idea. He maybe wants to kick back for a little bit or relax for a little bit. And what does Peter know? He knows fishing. So he says to the guys, hey, guys, I'm going fishing. Typical with men, they don't put a lot of thought into it. I know because I am one. And the other guys go, okay, we're coming too. And so that night they go out and they get in the boat and they go out and surprise, surprise, they don't catch a thing. Because the Lord's got something better for them than catching fish. And so they're cold and tired and hungry and, and cranky and the Lord appears on the beach and, and uh, you can't recognize the Lord. Maybe it's the distance, but it's probably his glorified body. I'm looking forward to that time when the Lord gives me my glorified body and you look at me and go, I don't recognize you. That would be a wonderful day indeed. And so they're looking at the Lord and he's in his glorified body and he's standing there on the beach and, and uh, the Lord now wants to contrast for them two different types of believers because he wants them to abandon one and become the other. And so he, he looks at them and he, he says to them basically this. He says, you know what, guys, you're living too much like someday saints and you need to live more like borrowed time believers. What's the difference between the two? A someday saint is that museum piece of a Christian who needs to get pulled out every once in a while into the light of day and dusted off. And it's that Christian who's going to get around to it someday. We keep making those resolutions. I'm going to get to it someday. But while we're waiting for that someday to arrive, we keep God and what he wants to do in our lives at arm's length. We procrastinate. And before we beat up on someday saints too much, each and every one of us in this room lives there. We live there too much. And it bothers us and it grieves the Lord that we do. So the Lord's coming to his disciples and saying, guys, I need you to live less like someday saints and more like borrowed time believers. What's a borrowed time believer? It's that believer that knows that he's living on borrowed time. He's living with a sense of urgency about every day. He knows that every breath he takes is a gift from God. And so he wants to do all to the honor and the glory of God. It's not just something he says in front of his Christian friends. It's something that he lives and breathes every moment of his life because he knows that his days are numbered and they're precious. And so the Lord then in that effort brings to these gentlemen three questions. The first question is implied by the Lord's presence. The second question he asks them in a roundabout way. And the third question he drills home by asking Peter three times in a row the exact same question. What's the first question? The first question is this. What are you doing here? Isn't that a great question? What are you doing here? See, by the Lord showing up on the shore when these guys are out fishing for fish, and by the way, when he called them to be his disciples, back in, uh, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, he said, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men, not fishers of fish. In Luke chapter 5 and, and, and verse 4, the, the Lord told Peter to throw his nets out on the other side of the boat. He's about to walk Peter down memory lane here in just a moment. It's a brilliant, brilliant teaching time from the Lord. So he says to them, I, I called you to become fishers of men and implied by his presence that day is this, guys, what are you doing? What are you doing here? It's a great question for us today, isn't it? What are you doing here? There's lots of other things you could do. Well, pastor, it's, it's uh, 
Sunday we go to church. So are you here out of duty? Are you here out of obligation? Are you here to evaluate the performance? Why are you here? What's your purpose in being here? After that first question, what are you doing here, is followed quickly by the second question, and that's this. What are you fishing for? Take a look at verse 5. Down in verse 5, Jesus now says to them, Children, you don't have any fish, do you? And why does Jesus ask a question? You know, when you look through the scriptures, every time the Lord asks a question, you need to ask yourself, why does the Lord ask a question? He already knows the answer. He's asking this question for their benefit. And so he's basically saying to them, hey guys, have you caught anything? He already knows the answer. And you know how it is when you're cold and cranky and hungry and wet and tired and exasperated and you want the conversation to end, you respond with a one-word answer, don't you? And so these guys do. And somebody yells from the boat, no, hoping that that'll kill the conversation. Aren't you glad today that the Lord doesn't take no for an answer? Aren't you glad? I am. You know, if all the times I told the Lord no, or wait, or not right now, or it's not the right time, or Lord, I can't be bothered with this right now, if if the Lord just quit all those times that I told him that, I'd be nowhere in my walk with him. So the Lord doesn't take no for an answer. He just smiles, and he says to them, hey, uh, why don't you take the net and cast it out on the other side of the boat? He now begins to take his disciples down memory lane. And he's asking them this question. What are you fishing for? What are you fishing for? That's an important question for us today. What are you fishing for? Fishing for a big home, fishing for the right job, fishing for status, fishing for relationships, fishing for boatloads of money. What are you fishing for? These guys are fishing for fish. They haven't caught any. So just like Luke chapter 5 and verse 4, when he first called them to be his disciples and he said, cast the net on the other side, and they couldn't bring in the load of fish because it was so much it was tearing the nets. Once again, they follow the Lord in faithful obedience and they throw the net on the other side and they catch so many fish it's difficult to bring it all to shore. And the light bulb goes off for Peter because he's seen this before. He knows now who that is on the shore. It's the Lord. So he puts on his outer garment, he jumps into the water, he swims to shore, It doesn't say so here in the text, but I'm picturing Peter giving the Lord a great big wet bear hug. At any rate, he greets the Lord while the others are rowing the boat back to shore. Meanwhile, when the boat gets there with all the fish, Peter goes over and he grabs the nets, and you can picture Peter as a strong, manly, stocky guy, and he's pulling the net to shore, and all the fish are flopping up on the the sand now, and you can hear the fish rattling around, and we're told in verse 11 that there's 153 fish, large fish too, all right? Fishermen don't catch small fish, we catch large fish. So that little point is given to us here in the passage. 153 large fish. Why is that there? Why is it important how many fish? Because it gives us an insight to the mindset of Peter at that moment. Peter's back with the Lord, but he has taken time to count all of these fish. And he's excited that they're big fish as well. What are you fishing for is the second question. 
So Jesus now begins and continues his teaching lesson, and he does it in such a wonderful uh, and, and gentle and caring way. He says to them, uh, he says, hey, guys, you know what? Since you caught some fish, why don't you bring some of your fish over, and we'll have a little fish fry this morning. We'll have a little breakfast, a man breakfast, I like to call it. And it says here that none of the disciples ventured to say a word because they knew it was the Lord. That's code for you could cut the tension with a knife. These guys know that they're not supposed to be where they are right now, and they've gotten caught. And the Lord is there. And so he says to them, come on, bring bring your your fish over. I got some bread cooking, we'll have have a little bit of breakfast. And so nobody says a word, they're all just sitting there. And ladies, you wouldn't understand this, but but men, when they go out to breakfast, they don't really talk, all right? And uh, I've got one of my boys, uh, we like to go out and have man breakfast. We go out to the man breakfast place and get the the big um, fat stuff on the plate, and we eat that, and uh, we don't talk about much, if anything at all. And we come back, and, and uh, Mrs. Scheibner always says, so did you enjoy your time out with Dad? And he says, oh, yes, we had a great time. And she says to me the same question, did you enjoy your time? And I say, oh, we had a great time. What did you talk about? <laughs> I don't know. Nothing. How can you have a great time and talk about nothing? You can. If you're a man. <laughs> But that's not what's going on here, all right? They, yeah, they're having man breakfast, all right, but the tension is so thick, again, you can cut it with a knife. Something needs to get said, and so the Lord says it. Now, I want you to think about, chronologically, in the process of time for these gentlemen, take a look at verse 13. Because I think verse 13 is terribly significant here. The Lord now has bread cooking on his fire. And these same guys are there, his disciples. And he takes a piece of bread and it says, and he hands them a piece of bread. How long ago was it in their life that he took off a piece of bread and handed it to them? Wasn't it just a few days ago at the Last Supper? The last time the Lord took a piece of bread and broke it off and handed it to them, he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this as often as you gather together in remembrance of me. So he doesn't say a word here in verse 13. He just takes off a piece of bread and he goes. And he hands it one after another. And the message is powerful. Guys, what are you doing? What are you fishing for? And so finally he brings us to the third and final question. The third question now he asks three times. And he goes straight to Peter because he knows that if Peter gets it, the others will get it as well. So he looks down now in verse 15 and he says to Peter, he says, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend my sheep. Now what's going on here seems pretty simple. The Lord's asking him a question. Do you love me more than these? which is the third and important question for us to answer today. Do you love him more than these? What are the these that he's talking about? Well, there's two schools of thought. One is that the these are the other disciples. And that makes sense to me. It makes perfect sense to me. The other school of thought is that the these are the 153 large fish. I'm going to vote for the fish. Because I think you can hear the fish, you can feel the fish, you can smell the fish. Peter's mind is in the fish. 
Peter is thinking about the fish and Peter goes to, the Lord goes to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter's already counted the fish and Peter's thinking, you know what, I got the best of both worlds going. I've got my love for fishing and the Lord knows where to find the fish and the Lord is back and he's better than ever. You know what, I can just take my carnal pursuits of fishing and the things I love to do and I can fit it with the spiritual pursuit of following the Lord and I'll just, we'll just make these two worlds fit. How often do you do that? I'm going to make it fit. And the Lord will never allow that. Never allow that. He will not allow us to take that which is carnal and try to mix it with that which is spiritual. Because the Lord is opposed to the proud, but shows grace to the humble. And so he's trying to humble Peter just one more time. And so, again, he, he asks him a question the second time in, in verse 16. He says to him, Simon, uh, the son of John, do you love me more than these? And, and he comes back and he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But the men are talking at cross purposes because the Lord is using one word for love and Peter's responding in another. You know this already from this text. He, the Lord is using the word agape, which means a divine type of love, an unconditional love, a love with no strings attached. And Peter responds with the Greek word phileo. He says, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I, I love you like a brother. I, I love you if. I love you when. I love you because. I, I love you with certain restrictions. And so the second time the Lord says to him, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter comes back and says, Lord, you know I phileo you. And then the third time in verse 17, the Lord drives the point home. Because he changes the word that he's using and he now uses Peter's word. And he says, Peter, do you phileo me? The implication there is this. Peter, do you even phileo me? Peter responds the same way. Yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. And then the, the answer from the Lord is always the same. Tend my sheep, tend my sheep, tend my sheep. The message for me is this. Regardless of how you feel about the Lord today, regardless of whether you're having a good hair day or a bad hair day or a no hair day, okay, regardless of how you feel about it at the moment, there's work to be done. Tend my sheep. We'll work out the what love me looks like part as we go along, but you know what? You've got to get out there and you've got to live more like a borrowed time believer and less like a someday saint. Which brings me back to the rest of my story. As Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. September 10th, 2001 is a day that means more to me than September 11th. Because in order for me to juggle all the things that I do, all the time commitments I have, I bid something that's called reserve at American Airlines. What does reserve mean? Reserve means that I'm on call to fill in for a regular line pilot. So there's two types of pilots, line-holding pilots and reserve pilots. We both fly about the same. I fly a little bit less than a line pilot because the idea is don't use the reserves. Everybody should show up for work. But if somebody calls in sick or for whatever reason there's a pilot not assigned to a flight, they will go down the list of available reserve pilots and they'll fill somebody in for a flight. So on September 10th, I did what I normally do before I come on duty. I went in that afternoon and I I, uh, logged into the computer about 3 o'clock in the afternoon and I looked to see if there was any open flying on the 11th. There was one flight opened on September 11th. It was American Airlines Flight 11 out of Boston's Logan to Los Angeles left early in the morning. It was a lovely flight, and no co-pilot had been assigned to that flight yet. So I looked down the list of available pilots 
for September 11th, and there was only one guy on reserve available for that day, and that was me. So I've been through this drill enough times. I went out and I, I packed my bag for the next day and put it back out in my car. I told my, my wife, I said, it looks like I'm going to Los Angeles tomorrow. And, and uh, for a short window of opportunity back in those days, for only 30 minutes in the afternoon, they would open up a window of opportunity for a pilot, another pilot, to bump me. He had to be senior to me. He had to hold a regular line of flying. He had to be able to fit in the entire trip with enough rest after his last one and enough rest before his next one. He couldn't go over 30 hours in seven days, couldn't go over 85 hours in a month or 1,000 hours in a year, and he had to want to go and pick up a little extra pay. And on September 10th, a guy by the name of Tom McGinnis did just that. Tom was celebrating his 42nd birthday with his wife and his children. And his children were writing him lovely little love notes, and they didn't know it was Dad's memorial service. Because Tom went to the computer that afternoon and did what I did, and he saw my name penciled in on the flight, and he called down, and he said, do I still have time to get that flight? And they said, yep, you're legal for that flight, but you've got to call us back, or else we're going to assign it to Scheibner permanently. And I assume he had a conversation with his wife, and sometime that afternoon, Tom went back to the phone and called American Airlines and said, yeah, I'll take that trip. And they wiped my name, erased my name off of it, and put Tom's in it. Tom showed up for work the next day. Beautiful day on the East Coast. Took off on time. Climbed up to 23,000 feet. Tom engaged the autopilot to take the plane to Los Angeles. And at that moment, literally all hell broke loose on the airplane. Tom was one of the first victims of September 11th. I now know what it's like to have somebody die in my place. Not just once, but twice. See, one guy sat and occupied a seat that by all rights was mine. I should have been one of the first victims of September 11th, but I wasn't. Tom bumped me off that trip. But the other person that died in my place was far more significant, you see. The Lord Jesus Christ hung and bled on a cross and paid a price that I could never pay. He substituted for me that day willingly out of faithful obedience to his Father so that I could be reconciled and you could be reconciled to God. He paid the price for my sin. Tom just occupied a space and time. Three questions remain with us. What are you doing here? What are you fishing for? Do you love him more than the large fish in your life? The answer to those questions, God will use to move you from being a someday saint to being more of a borrowed time believer. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, thank you for the privilege to share my story, brief as it is. I pray, Lord, that you would minister to each one of us, speak to our hearts today, help us to answer those important questions. And Lord, if the answers come up short, we need to take them to you. Lord, the days are growing more evil and the days are growing short. The Lord wants us to be borrowed time believers, living with that sense of urgency. We pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.